Okay, here we go. Here we go, here we go. Fold your hands, close your eyes, here we go. It's Lent. See if we can do something good here. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. All right, happy Lent. You're one year in, or one, one weekend, I mean, getting closer. So uh, for a couple of weeks at least, I want to talk about the Lord's Prayer, but I want to get there going in a different direction. But first, I just want to check on your Lent. So, you know, this classic thing that now it's suddenly famous, right, because the hallow people and all the cool kids are doing it. Of course, the church has always done this, but it's uh, interesting when you see, you know, your Bible study topic on the side of a trash can in New York City. Weird, right? So... Um, we should have tried to cut a deal. So uh, first the sign of the cross. So I wish you, uh, you know, Luther, there's nothing more Lutheran than making the sign of the cross. Luther says, in the morning when you make up, wake up, make the sign of the cross and say, and then in the evening before you go to bed, make the sign of the cross and say. Sometimes Lutherans are, you know, a little, have a bit of aversion, but you can hardly imagine why. So here it is, um, Chrysostom. Never leave your house without making the sign of the cross. This is under number one. It will be to you a staff, a weapon, an impregnable fortress. Neither man nor demon will dare attack you, seeing you're covered with such powerful armor. You think of that as arming yourself when you make the sign of the cross. Of course, the cross is the name. The cross is Calvary. The cross is Jesus. Then, of course, the Holy Spirit and the Heavenly Father, because they always work together. Let this sign teach you that you are a soldier ready to combat against the demons and ready to fight for the crown of justice. I was thinking about this morning, and the, there's a margin comment about St. Lawrence, the deacon who was grilled and, you know, reportedly said, turn me over, I'm done on this side, right? So you can read about that. But more importantly, uh, how humor is the opposite of fear. So when you can laugh about it, you're healing. Uh, it's one of the things when people can, can begin to laugh about a tragedy or wryly smile about it, then you know you're healing. And I was thinking how, how you know, fear and love are opposites and humor sides on the, on the, on the side of love. Um, Norman Nagel told me once when they interviewed him, he was coming from Balpo to the seminary at St. Louis. In his interview, uh, one of the questions was, does, does God have a sense of humor? And another professor told me that he, he, he regaled them with this brilliant argument about the laughter in heaven. So love and laughter go together, love and humor go together, fear and dread, tears go together. You know, sort of think this through. And there's St. Lawrence, not letting the devil have the last word because he makes a bit of a joke as they're roasting him alive. It was a horrible thing. They said they trust him like a chicken and uh, turned him over a spit. And so, um, you know, it's this horrible stuff, and yet he can say, you know, keep spinning, boys. Are you ignorant of what the cross has done? It has vanquished death, destroyed sin, emptied hell, dethroned Satan, restored the universe. Would you doubt its power? Make the sign of the cross. And so once a year, we make the sign of the cross with the ashes, uh, just to make the point, right? You are dust, and to dust you shall return. So hopefully there's not too much uh, push and pull there. I mean, there's nothing more... Lutheran catechism than, than making the sign of the cross. But then, um, you know, you're fasting, and I don't want to ask you individually how it's going, but I know some of you have taken on, and I, you know, tremendously difficult fasts, and I just want to warn you about this. In the past, when I've, I've said, you know, sometimes people fast 
sunrise to sunset. If you're going to work every day or you have kids or you have a physical job, that's a, um, almost a dangerous thing. Just please be careful. And some of you have found, I think maybe already, that you can't do what you set out to do. Uh, you know, then you have to decide if adjusting it is a weakness or a virtue. That's difficult too. Um, you know, struggle through it. But if it turns out that you bit off more than you can chew, and this especially happens with first time folks, except for those, we have had people here, no lie, you know, there, there's a particular beer that monks used to brew called the bread of life. That was, you know, they said so thick you could stand a spoon in it. And there were monks who celebrated, I mean, fasted during Lent by only drinking this beer for 40 days and 40 nights. It's like in, in, when we lived in England, um, in the maternity ward, uh, women who had just given birth were given a pint of Guinness because of all the good things that are in it, right? So, you know, if you pick the wrong thing, maybe you need to switch to Guinness, but I'm a pastor. <laughs> not a bartender, so you have to work it out yourself. But, you know, the basic rule is, you know, if it helps you love God and serve your neighbor, you're on the right path. And don't give up just from, you know, because it's inconvenient or you're suffering a bit. When you suffer, of course, you sort of say to yourself, uh, um, Jesus too, right? It points you, when you're inconvenienced by the things that you do, um, the point of it is to pause for a moment and use that time for a bit of reflection. And of course, being hungry again and again and again through the day is the sort of thing that can remind you of that. But just be careful. Then also almsgiving, and you know, uh, this shows you that, you know, that I was moving a bit too fast. Um, somebody said to me, now, what is alms again? And you know, these sort of things where you go to pastor school and then you just figure everybody, everybody knows this, right? So almsgiving has to do with holiness. And holiness has to do with creation, and creation has to do with generosity. These things are all tied together. And it's the reliance on God that he will provide everything that you need and then a bit more. And so, you know, the reason you can tithe, or the reason you can give alms is because, you know, you're confident that God has given you enough, and then also that you can uh, share with other people. You can live within your means, right? So here it is from, from Leviticus, right? And so I'd sort of suggested to you, you know, one way you might do this is get 40 singles and, you know, put them someplace, give them away or put them someplace and give them away at the end of the week or put them someplace and give them away at the end of Lent. I don't really mind. Or, you know, some of you, maybe five bucks or a hundred bucks is the right number, but just this visual, you know, put it someplace where you see it every day, right? Even if you don't, you know, go into the city every day where you see people with cups out, you know, Put it someplace where you can see it and, and give it away with some regularity. Find some place. If you don't know where or somebody, I know where and I actually know somebody's. So I can help you with that. But look, it's already here. This is alms in the, in the Old Testament. The Lord spoke to Moses. So you're getting a lot of instructions about what it means in Leviticus to be the people of God and what it means to live in the promised land, right? So the Lord spoke to Moses and said, speak to the congregation of the people of Israel and say, basically I have a Bible study. This is how we're going to live together. You shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy. Isn't it interesting? It's tied to holiness. What do holy people do? When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, right? This is just very interesting. Just, you know, leave a little grace, leave a little margin. You just don't go all the way to the edge. You don't need every last every last ear of corn. Uh, somebody who did a lot of business in China once said to me, 
the basic, he's an extraordinarily successful guy, he said to me, the basic rule of doing business in China is leaving the last penny on the table, right? right? It's like this. You don't have to have every last thing. So when you, when you reap, don't go right to the edge. And don't gather the gleanings after your harvest, right? So things that fall away or things that you miss. Don't go back through twice. Harvest what you got, leave a little margin, don't worry. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. You don't need every last cluster of grapes. You're gonna be fine. Just, you know, they're gonna be fine. Because there are people in the world who are not fine. See, this is the reason you do it. Because the rain falls on the evil and on the good, right? As scriptures say. Jesus would later say. So, you know, leave some margin for other people. You'll be fine. You're all going to be fine. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, right? If they fall on the ground. I can remember my grandmother telling me that they were so poor, you know, they used to walk the train tracks as a kid and pick up the coal that fell out of the coal cars as they went by to heat the house, right? It's like that. So, you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourners. Sojourners are people who are wandering for immigrants, wandering through or maybe wandering and staying. Anyway, somebody on a journey, you can get the word, work the word out of that. Because I'm the Lord your God and I'm holy. So, you know, uh, eyes up and out to other people. And this is beyond, you know, this is beyond your normal tithe that was brought to the church, to the priest, to the temple. This is just mercy. Right? And I'm going to argue hard in a moment, if we get there, that the primary characteristic of a father is mercy, as opposed to all the other things that are being uh, imported and suggested as what it means to be masculine and a father. But begin to stack it up, because here it is. The, one of the primary characteristics, or the primary characteristic of God, is mercy, and it goes together with holiness. If you're holy, then you're merciful. That's how, that's, how, that's how the Lord's holiness works. It works its way out in mercy, as in Jesus who fulfilled the law, perfect holiness, right? So anyway, there's almgiving, and you just want to, you want to have an eye for the poor, right? Again, there's no political statement here, and there are several strategies for how you might be helpful to the poor, but be helpful to them. If you're never helpful to them, you're neither holy nor merciful. So just you know, tuck that away. This is just how the world works. And repeatedly you know that the Lord says to Israel when this pinches a bit, you know, I'm just having you do, you're just doing what I did to you. I did it to you, you do it to others. This is how the world works when it works well. I mean, if, if people in America were more merciful to each other, more generous with each other, and again, this is not a political statement, it's not a governmental statement, it's not in any kind of statement, right? If people were more merciful, the world would be a better place. If the people had eyes up and out, looking to God and looking to others, the world would be a better place. Many of our problems would go away. But we insist on our own way, which is to turn in on ourselves, as Luther talks about sin, and so we reap the benefits of that. Anyway, so this is a place where you can train yourself over the course of time, to be more merciful to other people. And then, you know, I've asked you uh, to say, you know, the Lord's Prayer eight times a day. And nothing special about eight, except that it's a holy number, and probably is more than you normally said it, right? Um, 
Jews two or three times a day was the normal morning and evening in the temple or Daniel in the lion's den, right? But not before the lion's den, it was morning, 3 p.m. So interestingly, uh, the time that Jesus is said to have died on the cross. And uh, so more sun, sunrise, 3 p.m. and then uh, sunset. You know, if you say the Lord's Prayer, you know, clipping along, but not mindlessly, it's under 60 seconds. You kind of say to yourself, do you have an extra eight minutes to refocus yourself? Now, if it takes hold of you, it'll take you more than eight minutes. But, you know, just kind of think about this. Again, this is just like pangs of hunger and fasting. It's just like when you reach in your pocket and you don't have enough change now to buy a Starbucks because you gave it away to somebody else. These things are irritations, right? They jolt us out of our normal way of living. They raise our eyes to other people and then also to God because we remember why we did these things. And this is meant to be the habitus, right? The natural reaction, the habit of Christians. This is just what Christians do. Pagans live another way. Uh, people who are demonic live another way. But Christians, this is how they live. They live, they live in mercy. And what's so interesting, if you don't, you know, it's absurd. This is beautiful stuff. Most of us distrust God. Now that could be a sort of thing that could offend you right after the children's choir sang so beautifully. And it was a great liturgy, the early liturgy. I didn't do anything. It was great to go to church. It was fabulous. I mean, it was well preached. It was well celebrated. The smoke was perfect. The bells came at the right time. It was, it was, it was a great liturgy. You just kind of go, and you know, if you've done that and then I say to you, most of us distrust God, you might, you know, even that might make you bristle a bit. Just go with this. Most of us think of God as fearful, punitive authority, or as an empty, powerless nothing. And we can fall into this. God is against me. Luther talks about that in the final prayer or in some of the other stuff in the sermon today. You know, it's a very nice sermon. Um, most of us think of God as, as punitive, right? Somebody to be afraid of, or as a nothing. Why don't I get what I want? Or why does this evil happen to me? Jesus' core message was that God is neither a powerless weakening nor a powerful boss, but a lover whose only desire is to give us what our hearts most desire. To pray is to listen to the voice of love. Now, it's really interesting because I, I would suggest to you that you don't think to yourself, if I, if I ask you about praying, the first thing you're going to talk about is talking, not listening. But there's a parallel to preaching. Uh, preaching is not about talking, it's about listening. The Greek word for preaching is homo logeo. Same, homo, logos, logeo, words. Same saying. So the word for preaching is that you better deliver the words of God. And in the same way, when you're praying, Jesus draws boundaries, right? Whatever you pray in my name, I will give you. So Jesus tells you in advance what you can have. You can have anything that, it, that lives within his name. That's what you get. But you have to listen for that. You know, a pastor can't just go into the pulpit and, you know, once in a while in your life, especially guys who are alone in a small place and nobody to back them up and they have four deaths and it's Lent and they have two sermons. Once in a while, 
you know, you might go into the pulpit with five sentences and do your best. The Holy Spirit will bless that. What the Holy Spirit will not bless is if you're not prepared, which means you haven't listened and you haven't written and you're not ready to speak. You just go off the cuff. The Holy Spirit will not bless that. That is not to be a faithful pastor. To preach is to listen. To pray is to listen. That is what obedience is all about. The word obedience comes from the Latin word ab adira, which means to listen with great attentiveness. Isn't that great? To obey is to listen. Without listening, we become deaf to the voice of love. This is great too. The Latin word for deaf is surdus. To be completely deaf is to be absurdus. Absurd. When we no longer pray, no longer listen to the voice of love that speaks to us in the moment. Our lives are absurd lives. This is beautiful. In which we are thrown back and forth between the past and the future. We just can't find our way. We just can't stay between the fence posts, as they'd say in Iowa, right? You know, you just don't know which way to turn because you don't know who to listen to, so you're disoriented all the time. Much of our suffering is a self-inflicted wound because we don't listen. So we don't know what to say, we don't know what to pray. If we could just be for a few minutes a day, in this case, maybe eight minutes a day, fully where we are, we would indeed discover that we are not alone and that the one who is with us wants only one thing. This is all God wants to do, to give you the gift of love. All God wants to do is love you, and he would like you to love him back. God is not punitive. God is not wrathful. God is not your enemy unless you make him be your enemy. If you make him be your enemy, he'll be your enemy. But it's not what he intends. God's heart is full of love. So, you know, I've tried to suggest to you these four ways, which are classic. They come out of the text from Matthew. I've given it to you again a little later. This is the work of Lent. It is to receive the sign of the cross again and remember that you'll die. Memento mori, you put your death away then and use that to your advantage. When I die, God will be with me. And then you say to yourself, how can I be holy like God, which is to say, how can I be merciful like God, which is to say, how can I talk like God? So how can I see, how can I say, how can I do as God sees and says and does? That is the discipline of Lent, right? And it boils down into very, very practical things to wake and make the sign of the cross and make the devil horribly uncomfortable and also to protect yourself to give alms because the Lord will care for you. The Lord will care for you. And there's an always enough, you know, for somebody else. Um, to fast so that you can, as Paul says, pummel your body and subdue it. And then also to pray, which is not about talking all the time. I wish I had a pony, I wish I had a pony, I want a pony, I wish I had a pony, right? It's about listening and thanking God for what he's given you. So, um,
point number two, you know this now, and some of this is a little bit of overlap, so I'm gonna zip past the stuff hopefully that we're overlapping, but just to remind you that the disciples saw Jesus go pray a lot. They saw him stay out in the wilderness all night and pray, and they also knew that he got up in the morning, often before they did, and they'd have to come and get him. The people are looking for you, and Jesus is like, I'm praying, and they're like, poof, they're coming close. You better wrap it up. Say amen, let's go. So um, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When they were finished, one of his disciples said, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And then he said to them, when you pray. So the assumption is that you will pray. If you're a disciple, then you will pray. It's not maybe I'll pray, maybe I won't pray. Nope, you'll pray. So in this, you see, there's not just a curiosity, and we all need to come to this, but a humility. It's one of the reasons we talk so much about um, the Desert Fathers and Desert Mothers or the early church or Luther or great theologians, you know? Because there are people who are way smarter than any of us. There are people who are saints. There are people who have endured things. And unless we endure those things, we'll never learn that ourselves. And so teach us something. There's a humility in saying, um, you know, Help me, right? Teach us to pray, otherwise we don't know what to do. Now, this part we've done, and so I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but I do wanna give you a couple examples. Jesus says, all right, I'll teach you to pray, and it boils down to this. Don't do this, do this and say this. That's what it comes down to. And now this I'm not gonna do a lot with because we've already done it. Don't, you know, be like the hypocrites. Look at the words. You must not. You know, don't do this. Don't heap up empty phrases. Don't be like them. All right, we did this. Was, this was the Ash Wednesday Gospel reading. And just for fun, I give you then, um, this is around, you know, this is just after the Diocletian persecution. Christians have been, you know, torn to shreds. Now Constantine is about to become emperor. And there's a guy called... Galerius Caesar, so this is 311 AD, I think Constantine is 314, I'm trying to kind of pull that out. This was the introduction to uh, a decree where he was gonna ease up on the Christians a little bit, but this is just the dear Henry part right here, right? The emperor Caesar, Galerius, Valerius, Maximus, Invictus, right? Invincible, Augustus, Pontifex, Maximus, conqueror of the Germans, conqueror of the Egyptians, conqueror of the Thieves, five times conqueror of the Thieves, on and on and on and on, right? The resume is there. Jesus says, Jesus says to the disciples, Jesus is trying to get them to avoid this. This was common in the ancient world because you had to suck up to the emperor hoping he'd be good to you. So you presumed he hated you and you had to get on his good side as opposed to God's heart is a heart of love there's nothing you could ever do to earn that, so let's get busy, right? So Jesus says, we're not having any of that because God already loves you. He loves you more than you know. So don't, don't bother with that, right? Um, but this is how Caesar thought, he, this is how he understood himself, and these are what it means, what Jesus avoids is empty phrases heaped up, right? And so I've just turned the page, you don't need to do that. Instead, do this, pray like this, and we've done the Our Father, right? So I just want to point out the words are few, powerful, and beautiful.
You're known for a few words, few, powerful, beautiful. And I actually have spaced this in this way because I'm going to take a different order. I'll say this now, but um, I want to suggest to you what I'm trying to do. I'm going to argue over the next couple of weeks that the Lord's Prayer bestows the Holy Trinity. So our Father in Heaven is obviously about God the Father. Your kingdom come is Jesus, and your will be done as the Holy Spirit. So my argument is going to be that in the first bit, you are praying to the Holy Trinity. We think about it as only our Father, but of course the Father never acts independently. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you know, always huddle up and figure out what direction they're going to go, what play they're going to run, right? This is the, I've said to you before in a sermon, you know, um, the, the Father's heart is broken and the Holy Spirit sort of says, what now? And Jesus says, I'll go. That's how the incarnation happens. So, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then provide for what we need for our body, daily bread, for our soul, forgiveness, and don't let the devil ruin it for us. Make the sign of the cross in the morning. Arm yourself. So you should think about this as you say the prayer. It's not a nothing. It's invocation of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's for what we need, body and soul, and it is the protection from the demonic which seeks to destroy us. So point three, this is the key. Jesus, just give, Jesus does not just give us his prayer. He gives us himself. So Jesus is the embodiment of divine love. And the church is the embodiment of Jesus. Jesus says, the church is my body. What does that mean? I mean, well, I mean, one of you is an elbow and somebody else is a big toe. That's what it means. It means you are literally the body of Jesus, right? So um, the Lord's Prayer tells you uh, who Jesus is and what he does and what you're supposed to do if you follow him. So Jesus gives you himself. Knowing that, immediately you sort of say, well, point four, he gives us also his way. And I did this a little bit with you. Jesus doesn't say, kneel, stand, turn east, close your eyes, open your hands, fold your hands, fast before. He doesn't do any of that. But I will say at least to you, you know, if you don't pick a time and a place, you're never going to pray. You need the discipline of saying, I'm going to pray at this time. And I'm going to pray at this time. Set a timer, set an alarm on your phone if you need to. It's like taking medication, right? If you're supposed to take it every day at 9 a.m., set it, set it, set your phone. In fact, this is actually a good discipline for Lent. If you decide that you're going to pray at noon every day or three every day, set your phone. And when your phone goes off, whomever you're with say, ah, I, I, have, an, I have a meeting now. You actually do have a meeting now. Jesus will be waiting for you. But I mean, with that kind of discipline, you have to show that kind of discipline and you'll never do it. You just, you just won't. And so you should know then, and you do already, you have discipline, you go for quality and not for quantity, and that your words are precious. Look, it's way back in Ecclesiastes. Be not rash with your mouth. Don't let your heart be hasty and utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. By the way, I noticed, you know, I ran the thing from St. Francis about the preacher shouldn't go on very long. It's right next to the sermon. It was not aimed at Pastor Kendall. You know, it's just, I, it should have been a week when I was preaching. I just kind of lose track where I am. And it was, but it was like, he was 10 minutes on the button. So I want to just say, victory. Good job, Pastor Kendall. 
Now you will say to me, and this is a part, now this is gonna be a place where you Lutherans in the room are gonna get nervous, but you know what, it's probably good for you because you should be nervous once in a while. If you're not gonna stack words, what are you gonna do? If you're not gonna talk a lot, what are you gonna do? Be quiet. If the entire world would shut up for 10 minutes, Jesus would probably return wondering what just happened. <laughs> Be quiet. The fathers of the Eastern Church said that Jesus practiced stillness. See, here's the problem. Jesus stays up all night and prays, and Jesus says, don't talk so much when you pray. So what is he doing all night? What is he doing? If he's not stacking words, what's he doing? He's being quiet. He is listening. We've done this twice since I've been here. Lutheran, what it means to meditate on the word. The word is the word um, in Latin for meditate is the same word that when a cow chews cud. So you take a little tiny piece of scripture and you chew it again and again and you absorb it and you chew it and you swallow it and it becomes part of you. Only then, homo legeo, same saying, do you have something to say? You don't have anything to say until you listen. So this shouldn't be confused with going out and having a lot of good ideas or um, repeating a mantra that will empty you. In fact, the difference between Christian meditation and Eastern meditation is that Eastern meditation empties you and Christian meditation fills you. They are polar opposites. Meditation on the word fills you you become one with Christ, united with Christ. Be of the same mind, as Paul says. Have the same mind among you, Christ's mind. But this takes work. It's not natural. Your heart is dark and ugly. Right? There's nothing in my heart that tells me by nature what God says. I have to listen. So what was Jesus doing? Isaac the Syrian. A deliberate denial of the gift of words. So God gave us the ability to talk, but sometimes you stop talking because it's so hard to listen. <laughs> if you'd open your ears as big as your mouth, you know, you've heard this from your mother, right? A deliberate denial of the gift of words for the sake of achieving inner silence is hard for us. I am, I'm just like, I cannot even exist in the world anymore. You know, the vicar has taken away emails and voicemails. I tried to check this with other people under 30. They looked at me like I was weird. Like the first 12 emails I sent to the vicar, he didn't answer. I said, Vic, I'm sending you stuff. He's like, yeah, I don't answer emails. <laughs> and I say, I left you a, a, a voicemail. He's like, yeah, I don't, I don't listen to voicemail. And then as one of you said to me, hell is when you have a loop listening to the voicemails you've received in your life over and over and over again. <laughs> See, I thought it was the vicar. It turns out it's me. I'm the one who doesn't understand the world, right? And then, of course, you know, you have to text before you call. Do you know this? 
You have to text now to make sure it's okay that you call. This is great that I'm stepping down. I can't exist in this world anymore. I'm just gonna come close to you and tell you, good morning, how are you? And I'm not gonna text you first. I'm just gonna to talk to you like we love each other. It's gonna be great. We might start a club for people who want it the old way. Be model teas and steak and eggs and normal face-to-face -face talk. It's gonna be glorious. Isaac the Syrian. A deliberate denial of social media. No, that's not what he said. A deliberate <laughs> denial of the gift of words, right? A deliberate denial of the gift of words for the sake of achieving inner silence. Let me just say again, you know, all the things I, I mean, you, you've read all the stuff. I mean, anxiety is off the charts, and especially in people under 20, and, you know, depression is way, way up, and all the things, you know. One wonders, we've now tried almost everything else over the past few years, one wonders if everybody would just sit down and be silent and be satisfied, give alms and love the Jesus. You, know, you think to yourself, couldn't be worse, could it? A deliberate denial of the gift of words for the sake of achieving inner silence, in the midst of which a person can hear, that is a weird phrase, the presence of God. So not the words of God, but hear the presence of God. Now, you have to be careful here because, of course, in the end, there's no difference between the word of God and the presence of God. The words tell you about the presence. The words deliver the presence. But to, to, to listen for, I was struck again this morning, especially with all those kids in church, there is a moment, it doesn't always happen at the elevation of the body of Christ, but by the elevation of the blood of Christ at the altar, the sanctuary is dead quiet. I'm always struck by the silence, especially because of your kids. There are so many kids in there, especially young kids. It is dead silent. It's really quite remarkable. Just listen for it. It's, you, it's sort of striking how disciplined your children are because they've gone to church. It's because you brought them to church. That's the reason it happens. Just listen, you'll see. It's, it's unbelievable. It is standing unceasingly silent and prayerfully before God. What did Jesus do? He listened to his father. And then what did he do? Then he spoke, then he prayed. What do you do? You listen, you listen to scripture, you, you listen to Jesus, and he'll tell you what to say. When you pray, say this, say it. And notice how silence and quality go together. You know, it's in the Psalms. O Lord, open my lips, matins, and my mouth shall declare your praise. O Lord, you speak first. O Lord, um, open my lips. You speak first, and then I'll speak. If you give me praise to say, I will say it. But you never make the first move. We never make the first move. God always makes the first move. The entire scripture is written on this single idea that God makes the first move. God creates. God calls Abraham. God rescues. God brings into the promised land. God comes among us. God always makes the first move. God creates faith. God forgives sins. God bundles you up before your death. God always makes the first move. So silence leaves room for other things. I know it's gonna make you crazy. If you're not somebody who can be silent, you know, try 60 seconds a day during Lent. Just set a timer, 
Siri, set a timer for 60 seconds. By the time you look down, it'll be 59 seconds because Siri's merciful, you know. But if you can't be silent, just, just try it. Just try, build up your endurance. It leaves time for meditation, for self-examination, for confession, for absolution, for rejoicing in the gifts, for setting a spiritual course. You can't do any of that if you don't have silence. You just can't. These things take commitment, they take clarity, they take discipline, and you can't do that while you're making eggs or watching Netflix. You just can't. It, you just can't do it. So, um, Jesus gives us himself, he gives us his way, and then Jesus gives us his focus. And this is really important. You should be able to say, in ten words or less, what Jesus, why Jesus came to earth. Now, you can say a bunch of different things. Um, there's a bunch of different reasons, but here's one from the prophet himself. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew into Galilee. Goes into silence, right? Gets away from the crowds. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which is by the lake in the air of Zebulun and Naphtali to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What is Jesus doing? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach his very first words as a preacher. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Or repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So Jesus tells you what he's focused about. And of course, it's no accident then that the Lord's Prayer goes, Our Father art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Jesus is praying, just like you pray that you'll do work, have work to do and do your work well. Jesus is praying that he'll do the work he's been given well. And he asks you to pray for him too. I don't know if you've thought about this, but Jesus asks you to pray for him in this way, that his work would be advanced in the world. Crazy thing about the church, that Jesus would leave some work yet undone and trust it to you lot. <laughs> you kidding me? Really? We, us, pastors, really? Are you out of your mind? Look at Pentecost. Nobody submitted a resume. They just started taking people. That's no way to run a business. <laughs> but, you know, maybe their run employment was 3.2 as well. So Jesus gives us his focus. Whatever else you say, you must say the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is here. We've got to figure out what that is. And Jesus then also gives us his Father. And this is remarkable stuff. And um, uh, I'm probably going to irritate you now, but here we go. This is bold and innovative, and it's true, and it's arrogantly aggressive unless you're asked to do it. This is a little like when you were in... It, where you, when you were introduced to your parents' friends and you called them by their first name right away. It's a little aggressive unless somebody says, you know, call me Jim, right? So Jesus says, this is my father. Now, this is why I have a vicar, so I can argue about this kind of stuff. I say Abba, the vicar says Potter. So did Jesus teach them the prayer in Aramaic or did he teach them the prayer in Greek? This is Another argument about whether or not, uh, it was clearly written down in Greek, but how was the, how was the word said? 
Um, it's fun having a vicar because you think about this. Abba is this intimate name. Pater, the Greek for father, is more formal. Abba is Papa. Like you've collapsed into your father's arms after you just crashed his car. That's what it's like. That's Abba, Papa. Father is, you know, when you want to borrow money. Uh, <laughs> you show some respect. <laughs> This is the key uh, in defining father, work from the text to the world, not the world to the text. I'm going to come back to this as the first thing next week because there's not enough time to talk about this, but I, I have, this has caused the church no end of problems. I will give you examples when a priest or a pastor abuses a child, he destroys the fatherly relationship between a pastor and a child. It is the most devilish thing possible. The place that should be safest in the whole world is destroyed, right? Or children who've been abused by their fathers. This um, destroys the notion of what a father should be or could be. And so, when people like this come then to pray, there's this huge blockade about saying, our father, my father. It's, it's a deep sin in so many directions. Among them is, it blocks people from their heavenly father. Now the air in this, and what I'm gonna do next week, um, not this week because I don't have time, is the whole notion of men and masculinity. And I'll just tell you where I'm going to go. Um, you know, the masculinity movement comes up. This is the third time it's come up in my lifetime. It comes up about as often as speaking in tongues. So you can just see the rhythm of it coming up. Always, men look to the world and say, what's important to impose my will on other people? Because that's what it is to be a man. And all sorts of masculine virtues are described which are not derived from scripture. And then worse, we impose those virtues on God as if that's what Jesus meant when he said, pray our Father. You know, I'd never thought to say it this boldly, but I've thought this for a long time. I come across this text and I thought, can I really say this? And I thought to myself, this is the perfect way to say it. Christians have often used the word Father and given that word meaning based on experiences with human father. This is a form of idolatry. Hmm. I wish I'd have been so bold to say it that way. That is exactly right. So the Old Testament said that God is like a father. This is simile, right? God is like a father. There's a places where there's metaphor. As a father, God. But what is different here is the literal address of God as Father. God is my Father. Not as a Father, not like a Father. What is new in Jesus is that he says, God is my Father. Literal words and equivalents. And the bonus prize, of course, is that this is what he gives you to say as well. If you've had a horrible experience with a pastor, that is not defining of Heavenly Father. It makes it rough. 
makes it horrible. It turns people away forever. I get it. If you've had a horrible experience with your own father, it makes it extraordinarily difficult. It's a sin of your father and not of yours. But it is not the same thing as saying our father. We do not work from here, our horrible fathers, up to God, our father. We work down. And that's going to be my kind of point for next week with this rush to masculinity, which has been defined not by listening and praying, but by looking around in the world and seeing what wins. And so I'll just give you, I mean, I've given you the text. You can look at it for next week. But the point is, the ultimate father in the scriptures is the father who waits for the prodigal son. That is the father, and that is who God the Father is. And people who are in the business right now of defining masculinity and then also defining femininity have no idea what they're talking about unless they talk that way. And I didn't put it in here, but the easy analogy is, is Ephesians 5, where wives fall into the arms of their husbands and husbands would do anything for their wives, including die for them. And so it is, says Paul, with Christ and the church. So there's a lot of wood to chop here. We'll pick up here next week and um, see what happens, all right? Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, see you Wednesday. Come for dinner. Confession's open if you want it, and uh, then a bit of silence with Tizay. <laughs>